Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 43, Truth Without Meaning. Welcome to History Against the Grain. Once again, for episode 43, I am one of your hosts, Josh, and with me, as always, is Chris. How's it going, Chris? Uh, hi, Josh. It's going, uh, well, you know, it's going not too bad, actually, as we head into the, uh, the deeper part of the spring season for a couple of, you know, baseball fans. Uh, whose team was not really expected to uh, make uh, too many waves, I guess, this season. Huh? Uh, we find ourselves, strangely, in, unexpectedly in first place. If the season ended now, yes, we'd be going to the World Series, I think. Half a game ahead of the hated Dodgers. Yes. That's right. Uh, yeah, and tail end of the semester, right? We're in crunch time right now. Uh, this is what I'm doing instead of grading essays right now, which is, by the way, far more preferable than, than doing grades, is uh, talking to you about, about history. But yeah, it is, it's piling up a little bit here. Yeah, and I think it's a lot of that work, truthfully, you know, that we've done over the years um, that has inspired us in many ways for our own podcast. You know, I'm going to talk a little bit later about something I read just this morning, something that uh, one of my students was writing about that gave me, uh, you know, a certain perspective on, on what we could talk about in the episode. So, you know, there's, there's grading, but then there's inspiration. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've talked about this before, but it's, it's so often the case that, you know, we talk either in preparation for an episode or, or, you know, recording an episode and I go right to a class or a meeting and basically talk about what we just talked about. So, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and as you were saying, it goes the other way as well, that something happens you know, uh, you know, with our students or, or we read something from our students or a student says something and that goes into things that we're thinking about. So it, it's pretty amazing how this become this uh, synergistic, to use the uh, the uh, corporate term, um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, process by, by uh, of, of doing this podcast. So it's been it's a real joy um, and uh, it'll be uh, interesting when the semester's over and we have a summer once again to focus only on podcasting, right? That's our goal for the summer? <laughs> well, it depends on, you know, the, the baseball standings. But yeah, right, yeah right. I, I think, you know, but we're lucky that way, aren't we? I mean, I, you know, with, with no, you know, what, um, you know, no snark, uh, a no snark moment here on, on History Against the Grain. You know, I feel, you know, really fortunate to have had a, a job these many years where that kind of, uh, as you call it, synergy uh, that kind of creative flow, the back and forth of that creative flow from, you know, the work we present to the, the way our students respond, uh, that, that it often feels creative that way, you know, so that you walk into a classroom, maybe you've, you've done the thing before, right? Uh, whether it's a lecture, discussion section, whatever you're doing, uh, and it doesn't go at all. You know, the, the way that maybe you thought it would. And I mean that uh, in a really kind of creative and supportive way. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I like, you know, I like what you said about being a creative process because it, it absolutely is. It's it's um, something that, 
you know, we have to, we have our plans, but, but I think for both of us, we go in the class with a broad idea of what we want to talk about, but really try to let the, uh, the, uh, the mood take us where we need to go basically. Um, and, you know, talk about things we didn't plan on sometimes, uh, get into detail on things that we had planned on just talking about quickly, um, putting aside something that just is not, you know, catching the attention of the students and, and going somewhere else. Um, and I think it's, it actually, you know, in, in many ways, it's a preparation for what we do on this, this show, right? Is it comes right from, from our classroom experience, I think. Well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say the podcast really, and we've said it before, both of us on this podcast, you know, that, that it really grew from the conversations we would have in, you know, in the hallway or in our offices about what might have happened in class that day uh, or, or whatnot. So that kind of uh, almost spontaneous quality, you know, the, the live teaching is, um, you know, after 34 years, it has not let me down. And, and I'll say this, too, for our students, you know, for all the, the talk and we've tried to bring it to our listeners, you know, that we've heard, particularly through political channels, you know, near the end of the you know, the Trump administration, you know, talk of patriotic history and and offense being taken to, you know, uh, what sort of assailing the sacred tropes of America's standard version history that, you know, and often it's done in the name of what somehow protecting students. I, I don't know about you, Josh, but I, I think I do. It's not my students who are afraid of you know, these new stories and, and even more critical approaches. Uh, do you see it that way? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think students are, are very open to hearing different stories and you'll often hear stuff from them like, why didn't I hear this before? Much, you know, not so much, why are you telling me this, but why haven't I heard this before? Which is always, you know, inspiring because it means you're, you're hitting on something that's new to them, that's opening their eyes to a different way of seeing the world. Yeah, and even when it cuts against the grain of the standard version history that they've been exposed to, say, through school or, or whatnot. I mean, we talk about routinely controversial things. We talk about religion. We talk about politics, right? Aren't those the things you're not supposed to talk about with your mm -hmm. friends? Uh, you know, we talk about race. We talk uh, about empire. We talk about slavery. In other words, these are, these are all in a day's work, these subjects all in a day's work for us. And I think, you know, what we find is that even when students give a little pushback sometimes that you know, in the context of the classroom and the context of a course, you know, as we begin to find our way through these subjects, these other erstwhile controversial subject, subjects, the things that particularly, you know, the politicians say shouldn't be taught at all, whatnot, uh, that instead of, you know, meeting, you know, whatever resistance or hostility, that in the end, you know, it always feels, I don't know, pretty productive to me. Yeah, it, if you can have that good discussion, it's it's great, right? It's good to have some disagreements. It's good to have um, some, uh, you know, kind of back and forth. But you're right, when it works out, it's it's the best thing you can be doing in the classroom is having a real conversation about real issues instead of um, either allowing the students to continue to just believe the things that they've been told, you know, since kindergarten about history or, you know, just you talking at them and them just passively mm -hmm. taking this mm -hmm. stuff in. Yeah, and I tell you, because, you know, you and I both have watched now um, a film, a documentary, uh, a docufilm, would you call it, maybe, uh, by the filmmaker Raul Peck on HBO, uh, a four-part uh, film called Exterminate All the Brutes. And, 
how would you judge this film? I think if it's nothing if not ultimately, um, you know, confronting and challenging virtually every comfortable trope that the standard version histories offer. So uh, I don't know. Let's talk about it a little. Do you, th do you think Peck's work is something it could find its way? I mean, HBO decided to put it on, which I think, Peck himself says is something of a miracle. Yeah. Do you think it's something that we could find, um, you know, ourselves discussing or even showing bits of uh, in our courses? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you, you, we were talking about it uh, off the air, as we'll say, and, and you were saying that when you watched it, one of the things you said is, "This is what I've been telling my students, right? That you had that that familiarity." <laughs> and it's it's very cool seeing this kind of it's you know, and to call it history is not quite getting across what it is. It's it's very personal on the one hand. Um, mm -hmm. It's autobiographical to a certain extent. It's impressionistic. And then it also is historical at times, but he does cool stuff like takes these traditional uh, events, these things that are just ingrained in our understanding of the world and just flips them on their head. And so uh, one instance in, I think it's episode two, he has uh, this amazing recreation of, of Columbus and his men landing on the beaches of, uh, you know, somewhere in the Caribbean. It's not really made clear where. Uh, and they greet the the natives there, and everything's going as you would expect to, it to. And then suddenly, um, it turns to violence. But instead of Columbus and his men killing indigenous people, it's the other way around, uh, and they're forced <laughs> to flee back to their boat. And then you see uh, the Santa Maria or whatever ship it was uh, leaving the scene, just going off uh, for, across the horizon. Uh, there's another uh, part where it has a black missionary, Christian missionary. Um, who is in the Congo and he encounters a group of slavers who are African and they are uh, leading a group of, of enslaved white children. Um, and so, you know, like again and again, you see the, these moments where he takes your expectations and he subverts them in ways that are uh, very revealing about the way our narratives have been told, the way our stories have been told. And it's just, you know, constantly throughout, uh, you know, not everything works perfectly throughout the four episodes, but it's constantly challenging us to, to think differently about about history and it's so cool that it's on you know it's on hbo this is stuff that mm -hmm. you used to have to you know get mail order for some weird leftist you know uh production company <laughs> in secret and uh you couldn't get the library to buy it. and now it's on on <laughs> hbo so uh yeah it's been pretty amazing and it's and it's you know really fits in well with the stuff that we've been trying to do as well which is nice yeah it's not just revolution books in berkeley now it's uh you know it's hbo so uh, I, I agree, and it's really an experiment in storytelling. I mean, Raul Peck is is a filmmaker, and a lot of his films have a kind of bent toward history. He did the um, uh, the piece on James Baldwin mm -hmm. a few years ago, I Am Not Your Negro, which uh, was also uh, outstanding. I think you said you showed one of his earlier films on Patrice Lumumba, the, um, uh, the leader of the Congo in the early 60s, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but as a filmmaker, I guess his poetic license, you know, is to intersperse, as you say, moments of reimagined drama, kind of counter narratives, counterfactual pieces that are meant to, like all great art, somehow provide some sort of truth. And I, and I really was interested in how he as a filmmaker was, was trying to do that. Uh, and I know for both of us at one point, he offered you know, a statement that I thought it kind of stopped us both in our tracks because, you know, he was he was framing something in a way that uh, was, again, uh, perhaps maybe a little outside the, the conventional storytelling mode. 
uh, but which we both agreed, I think, had, you know, a, a kind of tremendous or even, you know, profound uh, sort of wisdom to it. Yeah, let's let's actually hear what he has had to say right now. Most disturbing here is the absence of ridicule and the silence of complacency. Any hint of decency has definitely been lost in the picture. We search for truth when we should search for meaning. Yeah, truth is not the same as meaning. Uh, this is something we, we see a lot because there's a tendency, I think, for, again, lay people. Can we call them Gentiles, non-historians? Are they Gentiles? Um, when they think about history, they still think about just a collection of facts. Like, that's that's all it is. You just collect the facts, you put them together, then you have the narrative, and the narrative is the narrative. There's nothing more to say. Um, but we have to be attuned to the fact that you can collect a bunch of information, but the choice of how you're going to put that together is is the most important thing. That there's there's meaning that has to be constructed out of a bunch of facts, out of a bunch of of you know, truths, I guess we can call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and different people can, can do that in very different ways. But what has tended to happen is that, um, you know, because of the way that the, the academy has been constructed, because of who was doing that construction of these narratives, putting those facts, that truth together, what we ended up with is a set of narratives that get across a meaning that I think now in the year 2021, we should be very willing to try to uh, deconstruct and rebuild because they're just not telling the kinds of stories that we need to be told. Um, I mean, probably never, but but particularly in this moment. Yeah, and and so therefore also not in some basic way telling the truth. I mean, look, you know, truth isn't the you know the enemy here. We're not going to as historians, we're not going to argue against accuracy, you know, factual accuracy or anything like that. Now, as a filmmaker and an artist, you know, the the old saying is that. Uh, what artists create lies to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, politicians use truth to create lies or something like that. Uh, you know, as historians, we you know we we're empirical. We we stand on the evidence base and and that sort of thing. But I guess what we're saying, you know, is as as I think, you know, we agree, is that truth by itself, you know, uh, that is stark. And, um, you know, unaided, uh, if you will, that truth by itself is subject to misuse uh, and abuse, and that therefore uh, we cannot uh, call only and, and naively for something that is true. We have to call for something that is true and offers us intelligible meaning that we can somehow then, uh, you know, take some kind of advantage of in, in you know, hopefully pursuing the goals that the, the, the moral clarity, as we sometimes call it on this show, uh, that, you know, is most dear to us. Let, well, let me give you an example, okay, because I was reading The New Yorker, and there was a little piece in the recent New Yorker by Amy Davidson uh, Sorkin, who, who writes for that publication frequently. She was doing a review of some books uh, that have recently been published on first ladies, that is presidential wives in American history. And the piece that caught my eye was a vignette that she related from January of 1968 uh, when Lady Bird Johnson, the wife of President Lyndon Johnson, welcomed about 50 guests to the White House. Uh, Mrs. Johnson, by that point, had developed something of a reputation as a, a more active first lady. You know, typically first ladies get various sorts of tasks 
handed to them, right? I think Michelle Obama had what anti-obesity and mm-hmm. you know, okay, uh, well, all right. I mean, other than look, other than Eleanor Roosevelt, though, but you know, for the most part, first ladies. I, I mean, Hillary Clinton tried, you know, in that first term of her husband's to do something with national health care, and, and it didn't work. And she was reviled for it. So typically what, what first ladies are given are, are, I guess, what we call kind of non-controversial right. assignments or causes yeah, to yeah. stand behind. So here was Lady Bird Johnson, already well known for her beautification campaign. I, I want to say it was during her husband's term that they planted the Japanese cherry blossoms. I could be wrong about that, but I know they planted a lot of flags and flowers around Washington, <laughs> D.C. Uh, so the beautification campaign. Um she had a White House luncheon, okay, in January of 68. It was called a Women Doers Luncheon, uh, as uh, Amy uh, Davidson Sorkin describes, in which uh, Lady Bird Johnson invited about 50 women to the White House for a luncheon to discuss the, the, ostent- the ostensible topic was juvenile delinquency and crime on the streets. Josh, juvenile delinquency and crime on the street, I guess as they enjoyed their finger sandwiches and uh, and you know passion fruit punch or something there at the White House and apparently even LBJ stopped in for a minute probably said something vulgar and then you know turned on his heels and left but uh, so it was going all along and she had invited various people from different kinds of organizations the YWCA for example that she invited journalists uh, one of the people invited was Eartha Kitt uh, Eartha Kitt, best known at that time as a singer, but uh, it so happens she had also recently appeared in an episode of one of your old favorite shows, and that was Batman. The good one. The good Batman. The good Batman with Adam West and um, the other yeah, guy. Uh, the other guy. Uh, and so she played, uh, I think, Catwoman. She was one of the, the actresses who played Catwoman on the TV show. But yeah, so, but as an African American singer, she uh, was best known uh, for uh, not only her, her singing career, but the reason why Lady Bird Johnson invited her more recently for her work uh, with uh, different um, youth groups, that is, urban, mostly black uh, youth groups. Okay, so everything's going along pretty good. You know, LBJ comes by, they yuck it up a bit. Uh, but then things uh, sort of turn to the task at hand and Eartha Kitt raises her hand. She says, uh, and she's quoted here in the article, you take the best of the country, says Eartha Kitt, and send them off to a war and they get shot. Referring she was there to the Vietnam War. And they get shot. It pays to be a bad guy, said Eartha Kitt, meaning that since a criminal record was one of the things that could keep young men from being inducted into the military. They can't come at you and tell you, Mrs. Johnson. They cannot get to President Johnson and tell President Johnson about it. They will rebel in the streets. They will take pot. Now, her reference there to pot was this uh, part of this uh, concern about uh, juvenile delinquency in America, in, in particularly in black neighborhoods, and the rise of marijuana use and what was uh, sort of the overall drift of the 60s toward, you know, recreational drugs and such. And so Eartha Kitt says, yeah, they're, they're smoking pot. They're smoking pot partly because they can get in trouble for it. And getting in trouble for it means they don't have to go to Vietnam. Woo, okay. So, so much for the... Um, 
you know, the, the prim and proper White House luncheon. Right? I think at that point they took off their evening gloves because, uh, as Amy Davidson Sorkin says, bedlam ensued. Uh, among the, the first respondents to Eartha Kitt was the first lady of New Jersey who spoke up and said, anybody who's taking pot just because there is a war in Vietnam is some kind of kook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, Lady Bird, uh, and, and went kind of, you know, from there, the wheels came off this luncheon. Uh, Lady Bird confided later on in her diary uh, that her luncheon would, she was she was afraid that her luncheon would be seen as a riot. That was her word, a riot. Now, do the math on that one. Riot, that was a word usually used in reference to what? Disturbances in the so-called inner city. So right. there was a clear kind of racial component now because Eartha Kitt was black. They were talking about, you know, presumably um, young black people in the cities and the issue of juvenile delinquency. Uh, later on, Eartha Kitt was targeted uh, in the press as disruptive and, quote, ill-bred, ill-bred. Lady Bird issued herself uh, a statement calling Eartha Kitt, quote, the shrill voice of anger and discord. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, uh, the attack was on. Uh, it said that the Secret Service even asked the CIA, Josh, for a dossier on Eartha Kitt, uh, and Eartha Kitt, uh, true enough, that, that appearance on Batman was pretty much her last gig, lost work in the United States and had to go to Europe to find work, uh, for example, as a singer. Uh, all of this she recounted many years later in her own memoir. So, OK, so there's the story uh, or the, 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 the ostensible events as they happen. The question is. What do we do with this story? In other words, we got the basic truth of what happened, but you know, what's the meaning? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, one of the things that, that occurs to me right away, we were just talking about how, you know, we, we feel pretty comfortable talking about, you know, um, different kinds of narratives and different uh, approach to history in our classes. And generally our students are pretty receptive to that kind of stuff. And here you have, you know, the first lady having this meeting and Eartha Kitt, you know, says real stuff in a meeting where apparently people were not supposed to say real stuff. And the result is that she needs an FBI file opened up on her. So just remember that the current panic about, you know, the sensitivity of our students today and uh, cancel culture, and all this kind of stuff. This is this was the 1960s, supposedly time before this kind of stuff. And uh, mm -hmm. nobody wanted to hear nobody wanted to hear real stuff in, in the in these meetings. Um, Right. So, uh, yeah, just just a little reminder for people who believe in the cancel culture idea. Yeah. That That's a really good point, because, you know, I mean, the truth of the story at the time was used to effectively, you know, cancel Eartha Kitt. Right. Yeah. You know, right. cancel her career in the United States. And that stood, therefore, as the story. That is, the truth of the story was that there was this shrill, ill-bred black woman who, you know, presumably what, mirroring, mirroring the, um, you know, poor behavior of juvenile delinquents in the cities or something, you know, um, only, you know, um, brought more attention to what the white administration of Lyndon Johnson, you know, was, uh, 
you know, was somehow addressing. I mean, this was the era of the Moynihan, famous Daniel, yeah. Daniel Patrick Moynihan report, right, where he had he'd come out with this thesis that the problems of crime, you know, traced back to the broken families, the African-American families that, that lacked, uh, you know, father figures and this sort of thing. And so there was a lot of uh, what inclination to see all this essentially as a kind of pathology of blackness. Right. You know, but I guess what so what I would say is, OK, so if that's what the tr the story told by the truth was, then we have the same truth now. But that's not how we'd tell the story now, is it? I hope not. No. And, and I mean, another thing that's that's, uh, you know, built into that in that story is that, that there's an assumption behind the whole thing, which is that there is this thing called uh, juvenile delinquency. It's a problem of, of black people and that everybody just was supposed to go and accepting that basic assumption. Um, and then accepting the pathology behind that, right? And so um, when somebody came in and was unwilling to accept that assumption, you know, the reason why Lady Bird reacted the way she did, the reason why the press reacted uh, as they did is because in their minds, nobody could even question this basic truth, which is that this is a problem. Mm -hmm. It's a result of this thing. Um, and that's, that's a fact. It's a neutral fact that cannot be, cannot be um, uh, refuted. But it very much could re be refuted, and uh, and and we see the result of of anybody pushing back on these these assumptions. Well, well, yeah, even if we agreed about the basic facts of what happened at the White House, we wouldn't necessarily therefore accept, as you pointed out, what the meaning of that episode was. So, yeah, I guess what we're trying to say here is that truth does not automatically create its own meaning. Truth, you know, when when we've accomplished the truth, we're only halfway through with our working day, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I, this is funny because I'm reading student essays right now, and a lot of times, you know, when they're using evidence, they'll sometimes just quote quote something, right, and then that's it; mm -hmm. they don't do anything. And I keep having to say, no, no, you got to actually now tell us what this what this means. You got to actually explain to the reader what this means. You can't you can't right. assume that just putting this fact in now yes. solves the problem. So do exactly. the next step. Tell me what it means, and then you got an essay. Well, I'm glad you brought us back to our students because, again, it's that synergy that you talked about early on that often has us thinking through these things for ourselves. In other words, because our job partly is to explain in as clear a tones as we can to our students, you know, what we're seeing in their work or what we're not seeing in their work and how they might want to approach something, you know, with a greater clarity or to think through the implications of something. So, I mean, you know, we do this for a living, right? But in thinking then about these stories, you know, whether it's the, uh, you know, the vignette from the, you know, Lady Bird Johnson's White House, or it's the, you know, maybe somewhat more eccentrically told stories of Raoul Peck in his HBO film, you know, I always keep coming back to this idea is, is that, you know, the in some ways, the truth is in the telling, in other words, in the, in the meaning that comes from the telling of the story. So as we've promised to do here on History Against the Grain in this, our second uh, year of operation, we're going to continue our discussion now and how those most familiar stories and some of the really big stories that define our sense of who we are, say, as a nation, you know, how those fundamental standard version history stories uh, often leave us not with greater clarity, not with greater meaning, right? Uh, but instead with a kind of confusion of meaning. So what do you say, Josh? You want to get into it? Let's do it. I, I saw my people. You 
One of the reasons that we, we started thinking about this is, is definitely the um, the Raul Peck film, Exterminate All the Brutes, but also something I, I, I found in a book by an author named Gregory Pirro. Uh, the book is called Decolonizing Hipsters, which is a title that should get you all to, to buy the book alone. But there's one, one part that particularly stood out to me uh, in which he turns to these kind of twin revolutions that happen in the Western Hemisphere at the end of the 18th and the beginning of the 19th century. He says, quote, the black insurgent army in Saint-Domingue defeated the French and declared independence on January 1st, 1804, becoming the first free nation in the world. North of Haiti, in the United States, now expanded by a third after Napoleon dumped Louisiana on rapist-in-chief Thomas Jefferson, black people had to cope with surviving in the first white supremacist republic in the world. A little different telling of that, of that story, right? <laughs> Yeah, let me check my U.S. history textbook here. I don't, yep, no, it's not there. That's right. <laughs> yeah, no, we love that both because, you know, it's, uh, there's nothing more familiar in that standard version, right, that somehow this, this, this new era, this Enlightenment era of freedom, you know, was inaugurated with the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, that quote turns out on its head, right. you know, uh, not only to suggest that the Haitian Revolution, which we'll mention again here in a minute, you know, was, was indeed the great wellspring of, you know, of liberty in the, the Atlantic world, but that, uh, and I don't know, maybe was it, was it calling Jefferson a rapist or, or, or was it simply the, the, the fact that, uh, that the American Revolution itself, um, you know, for all its its uh, hallowed rhetoric, you know, for liberty and, and equality, that that slavery as an institution uh, absolutely did survive the American Revolution. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think it is calling him a rape, rapist, <laughs> to be clear, but <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's so you know, it's the same thing as as we were talking about, you know, flipping the the Columbus story in its head and seeing the the natives attacking the Spanish. Except this is actually, you know, an example we, we've been talking about or the idea we've been talking about. This is truth, right? This isn't just, you know, a, a recasting of history. It's not just, a, you know, an alternative history anything like that. This is a perfectly plausible and I would say a, a more accurate way of understanding what happened in these decades from the 17, you know, 70s through the early, early 19th century than our traditional narratives about you know, the American Revolution and the, the rhetoric of the Enlightenment and freedom and liberty and all these things you have to ask this question, well, okay, so where is this freedom? Where is this liberty going to? Who's receiving that freedom and liberty? Who's being left out of that conversation? Um, and so this kind of, of, of version of the story, again, just reveals a lot of the silences that often get, get uh, left out of the, the traditional story. Yeah, and again, I mean, I like what you're saying, you know, and, and I want to just double down on this. It, it's not that we're saying that some other version isn't true in some basic literal sense and that this one or that this particular version is the only true version of, uh, of the past. We're saying that this particular framing of it, mm -hmm. you know, from the quote you read, offers truth inflected with meaning. Yes. Uh, in other words, it, it brings us an understanding that offers its own kind of moral clarity. And, and even as, as much as I'm, I'm cracking up, you know, because of the, the kind of, uh, you know, the chutzpah, you know, uh, calling Jefferson a rapist. The fact is that, that all the available true evidence suggests that Jefferson did impregnate a teenage enslaved teenage girl, Sally Hemings. Now, under all the statutes that exist, 
certainly in our own time, that would be statutory rape, even if we're given with some consent, except in this case, consent weren't even possible because she was enslaved. So yeah. what other thing could you call it than rape? Yeah. All right. Well, I don't listen. I'm not going to get high centered. I've talked about uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, before on the show, and uh, we're going to mention him here again in a minute. But here's what I want to suggest is that uh, for my part in this second segment in talk in talking about then how to create not only, you know, truer stories, but stories, again, invested with more meaning, more moral clarity. I was reminded of something, you know, a student of mine wrote um, very innocently, you know, in a piece, a, a discussion post piece in one of my classes um, and read it today. And in, in this case, it's simply a phrase, a phrase, okay? And the phrase was tyrant George the Third. Mm-hmm. okay? Now, referring there to the English monarch uh, at the time of the American Revolution. Now, I, I bet, Josh, if we did a kind of man-on-the-street quiz, right, in America, uh, if we could get folks uh, to recognize who George the Third was, even if we gave him a little hint, maybe we could say we could do a quiz. We'd say something like, "So therefore, uh, George the Third was a, you know, a defender of human rights, <laughs> right. you know, B, uh, an imperial monarch, you know, or C, a tyrant." Which answer do you suppose the average person on the street of America would would choose? I, I think most people think tyrant is part of his name. Right. Like that, that Tyrant George is his name. <laughs> his father named him that yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's one of the tropes of the standard version history of America, that George III was a tyrant, and that therefore the uh, patriots were in t- of, of the American colonial cause, you know, were, uh, for independence, were entirely justified in uh, rebelling against tyranny. Now, look, I mean, as far as it goes, calling uh, George III a tyrant, I mean, I would call that a kind of historical truism. In other words, we're not really adding meaning by saying George III is a tyrant uh, because inherent in the idea of a monarch wielding imperial powers, you know, is, mm. is, is suggestive of something that in a strict definitional sense would be tyrannical. But it's not to say, therefore, that he was what, more tyrannical than his peers uh, at the time? I guess we could probably say maybe in some ways he was he was less tyrannical. But we don't ever say the less, by comparison, the less tyrannical George III, do we? <laughs> no, you're tyrannical or you're not. There is no middle ground exactly. there. Um, now, and, and by the way, those who, who called him a tyrant, even among the American patriots, you know, uh, in, the, in the revolution, uh, only did so at the very last second, as it were. In other words, right up until, oh, gee, within, an, uh, say, a year of the Declaration of Independence, uh, const- you know, most of the petitions that the colonists were sending to England, uh, they were calling out Parliament. You know, they were referring to our most sovereign George III, our beloved sovereign George III. So nobody was calling him a tyrant. You know, until after push had come to shove and, you know, uh, war was breaking out sort of thing. So he was sort of a last second tyrant. Uh, But then, you know, but then, yes, um, they start piling on. So here's what I want to suggest. That's not good enough, Mm. you know, for for an understanding of what happened, therefore, in the American Revolution. We're not just looking for more truth. We're also looking for more Meaning and where the standard version history, what I call the SVH of the American Revolution is concerned, as it stands right now, Josh, we have a whole lot of confused meaning 
emanating from, well, strictly speaking, true facts. And you know, when you get confusion from truth, I, I'm not sure that we're doing our job, not, not as teachers trying to explain things for students, not as a nation trying to come to terms with who we really are. And remember, it was uh, Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, writing in July of 1776, who famously pronounced that the Patriot cause was on behalf of natural rights. As he put it, memorably, certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Again, that's almost like a, a kind of historical meme or mantra or something. Mm -hmm. I guess most Americans would recognize the words. They might have a little trouble sort of locating them. Maybe they go in the Constitution. Well, no, in this case, it's the Declaration of Independence. But yeah, we've heard these words before, right? Yeah, and so had Jefferson because it's almost boilerplate from, from John Locke, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, look, you know, now you put me in a position to have to defend it. <laughs> Jefferson professed that nothing he was saying was original. I always yeah. thought of it as false modesty, but he didn't exactly footnote John Locke, did he? Uh, <laughs> no. All right. Uh, we might have gotten him in the turnitin.com plagiarism checker uh, right. had the declaration been submitted to the algorithm. Okay, well, so Jefferson... Uh, um, is the man of the hour there defining what the American Revolution is going to mean. And I think for the most part, as a country, we've taken our cues, you know, taken that at face value, taken our cues as to who we are and where we come from and what that was all about. Now, there's a certain irony in all this because at the time, you know, uh, the Jefferson was writing, the patriots had come to calling themselves in their political rhetoric slaves. They said it was first parliament and then belatedly George III, now a tyrant, upgraded to tyrant George III, who uh, were attempting to enslave them, that is the free white colonists of North America, and that they were honor bound to reject that effort uh, of enslavement and fight instead for their liberties. Thomas Jefferson had gone so far, by the way, he was the principal author, if I haven't made it clear, of the Declaration of Independence, the principal or chief author of that famous document. Uh, Jefferson had gone so far in the drafting of the Declaration to include a section blaming George III, now again upgraded to tyrant, uh, for foisting actual slavery on the colonists, that is racial slavery, uh, the enslavement of African people on the colonists. Here's what Jefferson wrote. I'm just going to read it to you. He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty. He's referring here to George III. In the persons of a distant people, meaning Africans, who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. His piratical warfare, meaning George III's, the opprobrium of infidel powers is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain determined to keep open a market where men should be bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce. In other words, what Jefferson is saying is that George III has vetoed any attempt by the colonists themselves to abolish slavery. And that this assemblage of horrors might want no fact 
of distinguished dye, he is now exciting those very people to rise in arms among us, meaning the enslaved, and to purchase that liberty of which he has deprived them by murdering the people on whom he has obtruded them, thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. Okay. There's a lot going <laughs> on there. Close quote. Uh, yeah, there is. Um, you probably uh, don't recall those words the way you do uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, do you? I, want, I don't think. I think maybe in the version I read they were crossed out. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's the part of the declaration that was... Um, was edited out actually by the larger committee uh, of the whole in the Continental Congress. So that part of Jefferson's declaration never made it in. That part where he's blaming the now tyrant George III for foisting uh, racial slavery on the white colonists and for obstructing any effort by those white colonists to abolish slavery. So in other words, Who's to blame for slavery in America, Josh? George III. And, and I mean, the true victims of the slave trade clearly are American, white American colonists, right? That's, that's the exactly. other thing I got from that. Yeah, exactly. All right. So um, what do we make of this? Well, you know, we make of this um, a few different things. One is that the committee voted this down. Jefferson at the time, himself a slave owner, is in effect arguing that it's the king who is to blame for the slave, the people that Jefferson himself keeps enslaved. <clears throat> you know, so, so there's that. Uh, but also that because it was voted down principally by delegates from South Carolina, who the last thing they wanted to do was open up the Pandora's box of who's responsible for slavery, because Jefferson seems to be calling it a crime here, right? Yeah, and there's there's a big economic issue, right? Isn't South Carolina the main port of entry for, for enslaved people? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot, again, a lot going on here beyond just ideas of liberty and freedom and, and, and that sort of thing. That, the kind of high-minded ideals are, 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 right. are not quite as clear as we would like to believe, I think. Right, exactly. And so I've always wondered, then, how do we get from this? I mean, the one opportunity, right, where the revolutionaries had a chance to take a principled stance, no matter how oh, compromised it was by their own slave owning, to take a principled stance against slavery, and they don't. Mm -hmm. They vote it out. In other words, they edit it out, you know, with the, with the editor's pen. They just take it out of the Declaration of Independence. Because in effect, what are we left? What's the meaning of this? I mean, that's the truth of what happened. But is it possible to say, therefore, that the meaning of this was that the American revolutionaries were not willing to say that their revolution was an anti-slavery revolution? Right. Well, and there's a nice contrast because um, Simone Bolivar in, in South America, now this is later on, uh, himself, like Jefferson, also a slave owner, one of the biggest, in fact, uh, plantation owners in all of Venezuela uh, at the time. When he forms his his movement for liberation, he makes a, a basic tenet of it that it will be a movement for all people of Spanish America. Now, it, you know, the, it doesn't play out quite that way, but he does say that the new nations right. that come out of it will be nations free of slavery. Um, so it's possible, even for people who are, you know, kind of caught up in in the system 
of enslavement to make choices other than the choices made by mm-hmm. by thank you um, so much yeah, yeah. I, that's so important, Josh. In fact, one of the things you know we've said already about the the way we want to re- reframe these narratives is we want to take the you know the uh, the borders off them, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're not looking at Bolivar, if you're not looking at revolutions in South America, Mexico, you're not getting um, any sense that there were others, w- you know, way ahead of the American revolutionaries on the issue of slavery, right? Um, and, and actually, you know, the aforementioned Haiti is a, is a great place to look. Obviously, a very different revolution in that it was largely led by enslaved people and free blacks as well on, on the island. Um, and to, to quote um, uh, Raul Peck again from, from uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, he calls Haiti the truly first free republic in America. But then he says, and I think this is really meaningful and gets at what we were, we were just talking about, the only revolution that materialized the ideal of enlightenment, freedom, fraternity, and equality for all. It was the ultimate test of the universalist pretensions of both the French and the American revolutions, and they both failed that test, right? So if you're talking about real revolution, if you're talking about real liberty, real freedom, and all these ideals that were espoused by people like Jefferson and you know the, the French Enlightenment thinkers who were so mm-hmm. prominent in the, in the French Revolution, again and again and again, they were given the chance to do the right thing, and again and again, they made the wrong choices. Now, eventually, under uh, uh, you know the French Revolutionary government of the of the Termidorian uh, Directorate, they did abolish slavery, but only at a time in which Haiti was already or Saint Domingue at the time was already uh, you know in full blown revolution. So only did they abolish slavery when they were in danger of losing the entire island, um, and even then, when Napoleon came to power, he reinstituted reinstituted slavery, uh, which led to that last phase of the Haitian Revolution in which they eventually achieved independence in 1804 um, uh, as a free republic uh, without yeah, slavery. So, yeah. Well, among other things, what meaning can we take from that truth is that even the, the, the foot draggers, you know, the French, and we might as well say the British too, uh, who will uh, likewise uh, turn to abolition uh, a bit later, uh, because they were confronted with what seemed to be an endless series of slave rebellions in their colonial um colonies, you know? And so even those who were, what, moving at a snail's pace are still going to make the decisive turn toward abolition decades before the United States will, Mm -hmm. you know? So, okay. So all we have to do is ask a series of questions, I think, to draw this out. Did the American Revolution result in the universal abolition of slavery? No. Did the Constitution actually protect the interests of slave owners? Yes. Did enslavement both deepen and broaden in America in the decades following the revolution? Yes. Did it require America's bloodiest war to effectively abolish slavery? And then only decades after other states abolished slavery, including England, who remember the SVH wants to frame as the tyrant in the story, uh, did that actually also happen? The answer is yes. So, you know, we, we know these things are true. None of this is revelation here. But what it leads me, the meaning of this leads me and you to do here on the podcast today is to suggest a different story form. That is a different narrative that will make this meaning clear and do something even more important, as I'm going to suggest here, to bring to the fore those who were actually 
who were actually not only speaking for liberty, but laying their lives on the line for a liberty that, as Raoul Peck suggested in the Haitian Revolution, was far more universal, far more inclusive, and not compromised by the kinds of restrictions that the American uh, patriot leaders were putting on it. In other words, you know, with Thomas Jefferson calling for liberty and equality, even as he doubles down on his own slave owning. Now, where are we going to find that story? Are we going to find it among the Virginia gentry or the South Carolina sugar planters, you know, or even among the, the New England sons of liberty? No, that's not where we're going to find this more inclusive sense of liberty happening. We're going to find it among the very people who often get marginalized and silenced in the telling of that standard version history. But to tell that story, we have to ditch the SVH in favor of a different, uh, more true and more meaningful narrative. And to do that, we have to avoid what we call the sovereignty trap. Notice the way the SVH usually lays it out, right, is by looking at the political elites among the colonists, the Jeffersons, the Washingtons, John Adamses, etc. right? The, those men of property, educated, white men of property who were in effect the colonial elites at the time, those who would be governing and creating the systems of governance. So that's what we call the sovereignty trap. If you're going to look at the sovereignty uh, quotient here in the American Revolution, that's the confused meaning you're, you're going to get trying to fit the what the 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 square peg of liberty into the round hole of slave owning or mm -hmm. something like that, Josh. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So instead, the story we want to tell is what one author has called an ensemble story of resistance. And it's going to focus on black lives now because black lives then uh, and black lives now because it was, after all, those enslaved who had the most to gain or lose on a question like liberty. Now, you know, we've talked a bit about this before. When you go back to the documents, the evidence base, say, of the colonial period, one of the things we're going to have to do, we're going to have to take off the borders. We can't just, you know, content ourselves with the 13 colonies because that has its own distortive effect. The colonies were themselves part of a larger British imperial fabric. The 13 colonies didn't certainly see themselves as united one with the other. They saw themselves as part of that larger individually, that is, as part of that larger imperial fabric. So we're going to take the borders off to reflect a truer understanding of how folks then at the time would have understood their place in the British Empire. And we're going to change the chronology. You know, it's typical in the standard version of history. You start gearing up for the revolution about 10 years before 1776. Josh, you probably remember from your schoolboy days, you know, the Stamp Act, the Intolerable Acts, the Tea Party. You remember that stuff? Barely rings a bell, but yes, I'll say yes. It's been a while. <laughs> okay, so that's part of the catechism, though, right, of mm -hmm. the coming of the American Revolution. And it focuses on that sovereignty quotient again, because it looks at what political leaders, elite white male property owners, were saying about liberty and their growing disenchantment with Great Britain. But if we instead refocus the narrative on black lives, we get a very different sense of liberty and a much bigger, broader picture. For example, 
Take the act of running away. We've talked about this before. That is to, in effect, rebel against your enslavement, to leave behind your bondage, to make your bid for freedom, voting with your feet, as it were, by running away. From 1736 to 1790, one colonial newspaper, the Virginia Gazette, presented, pr printed over 1,600 runaway slave advertisements. I'll say it again, from 1736 to 1790, the Virginia Gazette, a colonial newspaper, and then an early national era after the revolution too, printed over 1,600 runaway slave advertisements. So what, what meaning might we take from that true fact, Josh, that if we were looking for people who were laying their lives on the line to have liberty, we could do worse than focusing on who? On, on the black people who were literally voting with their feet. And, and, you know, again, running away is not easy in a system that basically the entire system is, is formed around policing you know, mm -hmm. these, these um, enslaved people and making sure that they would stay on the plantation, making sure they wouldn't rebel. Um, and, and, you know, I was reading a bunch of stuff about slave rebellion just in preparation for this. And one of the things I noticed is that particularly older um, uh, accounts of, of slave rebellions tend to, to put a lot of attention on kind of the political maturity of, of the rebels. Um, that, you know, there was an uprising, but they weren't politically mature enough or something like that. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and it, it kind of imposed upon it this, again, this, this kind of sovereignty trap that unlike, mm -hmm. I, you know, the way I was reading is unlike the American revolutionaries, unlike the French revolutionaries who were politically mature, what you had here was just a pure expression of, of, of I don't know, emotion or passion or something like that. It, it's mm -hmm. this kind of trope that, that, you know, this kind of um, logical, rational versus feeling emotional um, that is is so much imposed upon you know men you know men versus women, but also white versus versus black or uh, white versus other races, and um, but but what you're talking about here is is the truest expression of this desire for freedom, right? Mm -hmm. The political maturity we can get that out of there. It's people who are who are going through amazing amounts of danger, potentials for sacrifice, potentials for torture and death, because that's how much they want freedom. It's just pure unadulterated thirst for for liberty we need to focus on that because that's the real stuff right exactly man you make a great point because we can only distort it you know by sort of taking the lens out of focus and calling it something that that it wasn't you know, calling it emotional or mm. you know some of those things you mentioned in other words trying to to reduce it to some you know Im improper motive but you know who are we kidding this the motivation was liberty yeah to run away uh when all the penalties and all the punishments grievous punishments including death uh faced you uh to nevertheless make that bid for freedom is about as pure i think an instance historical instance of of you know putting it all on the line for a uh, you know a particular ideal as i can i can think of yeah. so yeah. Um, so, all right. So notice what I'm saying. 1736, if we just take the slave, uh, the runaway slave advertisements. So in, you know, a broader chronology, we're starting earlier. We're not waiting for the Stamp Act in 1765 when whites, elite, propertied white political uh, men, you know, start campaigning for liberty. This is happening decades before, you know, in the plantation districts. 
uh, of the colonies, you know, on the farms and even in the cities where enslavement was universally practiced. Now, sometimes these folks who ran away, they made it, you know, they found some measure of freedom, often by collecting themselves into communities of runaways that we uh, tend to use the, the, uh, the Latin word, you know, uh, maroon communities. It comes out of both the Spanish and the French uh, experience in the Western Hemisphere of those enslaved peoples who make a bid for freedom, join up with other so-called fugitives and form their own communities. And now this is a, uh, a phenomenon that happens, what, Josh, all the way through the greater Caribbean world, right? Absolutely. I think um, it would have been a little bit after this, but uh, after the American Revolution, but there's a group of enslaved people in Jamaica who, uh, who form themselves into an army and actually fight British imperial forces mm -hmm. to a standstill to the extent the British finally agreed to allow them to remain free. Um, the, uh, the, the deal, though, makes them return any escaped slaves who come to them. They have to be returned to the British authorities. But otherwise, they're signing treaties with the British imperial uh, government um, as equals, basically, uh, because they, they formed a community that's you know uh, able to govern itself and therefore able to to maintain that independence. So, and th that's just one example. There's many, many examples across mm -hmm. the Americas of these so-called maroon communities that form into political communities. I guess that's the political maturity that that uh, some of the authors had, had talked about um, and are able to carve out something for themselves outside the bounds of, of slavery in the colonial society. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you wouldn't know that, right, if you strictly bordered your history, as the SVH does, to include only the 13, the present 13 colonies at the time, you would get that bigger picture. You wouldn't get that bigger picture. And, and here's what I want to say, too, though. But because you frame it the way you suggest that it is often framed, and I think you're absolutely right about it, somehow delegitimizing these uh, communities of newly freed, self-freed, self-emancipated uh, former slaves, you know, by, by sort of, you know, delimiting them or, or delegitimizing them or something, you know, you make them not part of that formal conversation about where liberty is coming from in America. But the truth is, you know, those marine communities were here as well. I mean, in places like the, the great dismal swamp of Virginia, for example, which is a part that borders southern Virginia and North Carolina, where you have these maroon communities. Sometimes they were temporary. Sometimes they would last for years. Uh, in the bayou, the, right. in the swamps of Louisiana, you have these pretty robust maroon communities made up of, uh, you know, of, of former slaves, right? Again, who have self-emancipated. In other words, my question is, so why don't, when we're talking about American liberty, why don't we feature those stories more, Josh? I mean, I think we've, we've kind of talked about this because there's a narrative, there's a set of assumptions that are built into the way these stories get told. And it's like we're Lady Bird, you know, our society is Lady Bird Johnson at that, you know, at that, <laughs> that, uh, the meeting of uh, about juvenile delinquency. We don't, we're not here to hear those other, those other versions of it. We don't, that's not part of the story. It doesn't, doesn't celebrate, uh, you know, the American dream. It doesn't celebrate uh, these, these ideas of, of the city on the hill. It, it does none of the things that, you know, the traditional national narrative has done. It undermines, in fact, a lot of those ideals. And to the extent that it does, it's not going to show up in, in, you know, the dominant textbooks, at least, um, right. you know, for, for I think it's getting better now. But but generally does not show up in those things because it doesn't support the narrative that that we're supposed to believe that we're supposed to bring yeah. with us, you know, as we become citizens of, of this nation. Yeah, no, you're right. The only thing I would I would take issue with, it's not getting better. <laughs> don't kid your don't kid yourself just because you and I are talking about it right here. 
if we did uh, any kind of serious look at, say, um, current American history textbooks where something like maroon communities are mentioned, yes. it would in no way challenge the dominant sovereignty narrative of where history was actually going. They would be seen as incidental you know, to that larger, more important story. How do I know that? Because I have to read student essays semester after <laughs> semester, you know, and that's, and that's what's inculcated. All right, so moving from that broader chronology and that broader geography, you know, decades before the American Revolution, the Colonial War of Independence, the enslaved peoples of Louisiana and South Carolina fought their own wars of independence against the tyranny their own uh, imposed tyranny of slaveholding, right? Far greater than the fight against taxation uh, that the so-called colonial patriots would later fight. Uh, taxation without representation, as the meme has it. Uh, and it was fought over the dominion of slavery itself. So, for example, in 1739, we know about South Carolina's Stono Rebellion, which saw a band of enslaved men and women rebel against the white slave-owning authorities. The Stono Rebels, uh, so-called because it was near the Stono River in South Carolina where they first assembled, these were enslaved fugitives who formed themselves into a kind of militia force, came off the, um, uh, the rice plantations of the Carolina lowlands, assembled themselves into a kind of militia force, including, by the way, battle flags, that most scholars seem to think harkened back to symbols from uh, their African culture mm. uh, and made their way, attempted to make their way toward a settlement in Spanish Florida, the South called Fort Mose. Fort Mose, if you know, uh, recognize the name Mose, the kind of Iberian transliteration yeah. of Moses, Moses right? Uh, so Fort Mose in Spanish Florida, a settlement near St. Augustine, where they had hoped to join a community of fellow fugitive slaves, partly because the friend or the Spanish Empire at this point was allowing this to happen, mostly to tweak the English colonies to the north. In 1731, a few years before the Stono Rebellion in South Carolina, a planned uprising of 400 enslaved workers in Louisiana was discovered and suppressed by whites. That lost opportunity did not prevent others who were enslaved from asserting their own independence in an area south of New Orleans, known to the French as La Cipriere, enslaved Africans accomplished what the Stono rebels of South Carolina had only envisioned. They successfully achieved their independence and built sustained communities of fugitive slaves known as maroon colonies, as we've suggested, in the cypress groves and swamps throughout the Bas de Fleuve, the area between the mouth of the Mississippi River and New Orleans, runaway slaves clustered in small camps sharing their food and shelter. And it was there in the rivers and bayous of Louisiana that powerful resistance to slavery accumulated. Now, this happened not in a single act of rebellion, but by repeated instances of runaways. So we have examples then of both concerted acts of rebellion like the Stono Rebellion, and we have the more sort of ongoing acts of rebellion such as in Louisiana. But either way you slice it, that's a pretty broad chunk of North American landscape to simply leave out of the traditional telling of the story. But guess what? When we combine it with similar things that are going on all across the Atlantic world, for example, uh, you know, in the Danish island colony of St. John's in 1733, 90 enslaved Africans seized control of the island and held it for months. 
On another West Indies island, the British Shire colony of Antigua, a rumored slave rebellion was suppressed in 1736, and the African leader known as Prince Klaus was executed with other alleged conspirators. More successful, and, in, and you alluded to this, Josh, was the Jamaica Rebellion, known as the First Maroon War, which ended in 1739. Jamaica had a long tradition of runaways, as you pointed out, settling uh, so-called maroon communities. From 1728 to 1739, the British engaged various maroon groups, including one led by an African woman named Nani, who became celebrated in Jamaican history as the heroic Queen Nanny. Ultimately, the British decided to offer peace treaties, as you also uh, suggested. So as ships arrived in the ports of Charleston and New Orleans, news of these outbreaks spread, and gossip was just another commodity traded among the ship hands, passengers, merchants, and local enslaved laborers who listened with silent interest. It was in the 1960s, Josh, that statues were finally erected in some of these Caribbean places representing slaves now heroically in body positions that demonstrated their resistance, often with raised arms and breaking chains. These statues featured identifiable historic individuals, such as Gaspar Yanga from Mexico, Bencos Bijo uh, from Colombia, Carlata in Cuba, Busa in Barbados, and Zumbi of Palomares in Brazil. In other words, only in the 1960s, and not in the United States, but in other places around the Caribbean world, recognition was finally given to what I would call the hemisphere's first true freedom fighters. Mm. Okay? I like that. Not Samuel Adams, you know, not Patrick Henry. You know, with all due respect to those, you know, entitled propertyed <laughs> whites who were upset about a minimal tax increase. Uh, I would suggest that these folks, you know, like Gaspar Yanga, like Queen Nani, uh, and those um, assorted, uh, you know, rebel figures, then who really, I think, well, you know, what am I saying? It should be the beginning of our story about liberty in the Western Hemisphere. And if we stretch it up to the American Revolutionary Period, we get other examples that are usually not mentioned. Uh, famously, Lord Dunmore, a British uh, governor of Virginia in 1775, when hostilities were breaking out between the Patriots and the English, declared that any enslaved servants who uh, were willing to flee their plantations would be given uh, immunity by the British. That is, would be given their freedom uh, particularly if they're willing to bear arms on the British side. This was uh, so-called Lord Dunmore's proclamation. Now, it's estimated that about 4,500 runaway enslaved men and women fled into his ranks. So there was an abolition, Josh, during mm -hmm. the American Revolution, but it came from the British, right. not from the American patriots. In fact, of the 4,500 runaways, 23, an estimated 23 of them, came from Thomas Jefferson's property and another 16 from George Washington's. Wow. When Jefferson recovered six of his runaway slaves after the war, he sold five of them as punishment for their disloyalty. The other man died before he could be sold. Uh, there was the example of a woman from Monticello, Black Sal, as she was known in the plantation records, 
who left with her two children, left Monticello, left Jefferson's uh, enslavement behind, and joined up the British, but died in a British military camp, not because they were punished by the British, but because of the um, uh, the uh, uh, epidemic of disease that was then moving through the camp. So they didn't survive. But, but again, uh, I mean, who do we want to credit with a liberty movement if not those folks who put everything on the line, not just in resistance to some imperial tax, but in abject resistance to their ultimate enslavement. Well, what it reminds me of is, you know, this idea of the Enlightenment, you know, which obviously is, is, is such an important set of ideas that help frame the way we're supposed to understand the American Revolution, the French Revolution. But what we have are a bunch of universalist ideas being expressed by, by, and, and many good ideas, to be clear, but many universalist ideas that are essentially being used to serve particular interests, right? The particular interest of, of you know, this white property class, this professional class, who are often, not always, uh, in the French case, often, you know, the main figures in these revolutions, the main ideologues, the main leaders. And then on the other hand, you have enslaved people who are working for their own particular interest, right? Freedom. But in doing so, they're really living up to the universalist ideologies that are supposedly at the center of, of the Enlightenment. So, you know, if you just kind of, again, that's an example of you're flipping this, this, the script a little bit, you're flipping the narrative a little bit. But if you see the people, you know, as, as, um, as Raul Peck noted in the, in the quote I, I read earlier, if you look at, you know, who's really living up to these ideals, it's not Thomas Jefferson, it's not, you know, George Washington, it's not, um, you know, major figures in the in in the French Revolution it's the people who understood liberty the best because it was something that was denied to them hmm. the most right yeah that's that's really well said and 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 why you know why well why we uh, you know insist upon telling the story from that kind of sovereignty perspective is is pretty clear it's because the stories that were going to be written about the history of this period were going to be written from the perspective of that sovereignty entitlement, in other words, from that position of power. The first national histories, for example, of the United States in the 1800s are going to very much be written from that perspective. And as a result, that's the inherit. That's our inheritance, you know, um, mm. as 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 American people. Now, uh, again, what we're suggesting here is that we want to tell stories, though, that have greater meaning for us in resolving the issues, complications, problems, challenges, injustices, et cetera, of the world we live in and are living in today. And when we insist on telling that sovereignty story, you know, about aggrieved landowners and slave owners who didn't want to pay a few shillings more of, of a stamp tax or something and vesting all our ideals and legacy of liberty in that, then what we leave is this other much more inclusive, much more comprehensive story of liberty that we're discussing here. We basically leave it on the sidelines. Now, I'm going to finish for my part today. One more example. You mentioned the Haitian Revolution before. Again, we do not usually uh, give that credence when we do the SVH of, of, of U.S. national history. I mean, it's, it's mentioned as an aside, if anything. But really, as the quote you offered at the beginning of this segment suggests, if we're looking for a fundamental revolution on behalf of genuine liberty and freedom, you would have to obviously uh, center the Haitian Revolution 
because that's exactly what it does. Now, on the other side, or just as that, that Haitian revolution was essentially fully resolving itself, the United States goes to war with Great Britain uh, in the eponymously titled War of 1812, right? The War of 1812. Now, when the war broke out between the U.S. and Great Britain, now usually, by the way, the War of 1812 is featured in the SVH and in the textbook is the moment when America truly becomes independent. That is, when the United States truly becomes independent by finally casting off the British yoke. But I have a feeling they're not talking about the folks I'm going to mention. When war broke out between the U.S. and Great Britain in 1812, enslaved men and women living in the colonies from Virginia to Georgia took up the British Navy's invitation once again to be received as free settlers. That's a quote in the British proclamation. Those who would leave the plantations behind. Now listen, clearly this was a wartime act by the British to try to hurt the American landowners, right? We don't have to credit the British with being somehow more enlightened where slavery was concerned because after all, slavery still existed in a British empire. But nevertheless, that's not even the significant part. Uh, responding to this invitation, this wartime invitation to be received as free settlers and to serve as wartime allies, allies, excuse me, free of enslavement, was met with great ardor by those who were enslaved. It was an unexpected but not unprecedented uh, precedented offer from the British, similar to the one we just mentioned, the Dunmore Proclamation in the American Revolution. Uh, as was true on that occasion, the offer was really a wager for freedom, one involving great risk of certain punishment by their masters for those, that is, though their enslavers, for those fleeing captivity. Nevertheless, escaping the plantation farms in the Chesapeake and the coastal sea islands of Carolina and Georgia, those who made it to British lines found the wager fulfilled. Many of the freedmen fought with the British 4th Marine Company in the Corps of Colonial Marines on the British side. Others, including women, served in civilian support capacities uh, for the British. Good to their word, following the war, the British delivered them to a colony, Trinidad, where they were received by the royal governor of the island as, quote, American refugees. Arriving first in Trinidad was a group of 86 settlers in May of 1815, followed two months later by another 58, all of them former slaves in the United States, and then an additional 63 arriving that November, all of them self-emancipated and formerly enslaved men and women. The following year came another 574 mostly disbanded soldiers who comprised the heart of the colonial marines military contingent. Again, former slaves on the American mainland who fought for the British in the War of 1812 and were granted their freedom. Each of the American refugees, as they were called, was granted 16 acres of free but undeveloped land on Trinidad as part of six newly established company villages organized around the assigned military companies they had served during the war. And their name, uh, as they came to be known on Trinidad, as they came to be called as a group, was Americans. Hmm. Americans. Um, and so, uh, again, uh, not often told, not often recognized story that both involves the greater Caribbean, but also the greater sacrifice and effort on behalf of those values that are typically uh, credited to only 
the propertied uh, interests of the day, the political elites of the day, even though many of them were themselves, as we know, uh, slave owners. So if, again, we're looking for a narrative that stretches now from the 1730s up through 1815, how about we call that the American Revolution, Josh? I like it. Let's do it. So as we finish up here in segment three, I want to take us in a little bit of a different direction uh, while still keeping that focus on, on truth and meaning. And I want to take us outside the Western Hemisphere and focus on this idea of the rise of the West. It's this kind of famous narrative uh, which goes back you know, decades and decades, probably the 1960s, when William McNeil writes his book, Rise of the West. And it's become kind of a standard part of, I think, you know, traditional world history and then certainly in the Western Civ as well. And the idea is to explain this kind of unique development of, quote unquote, the West. Now, the tendency within this narrative has been to describe elements of European or American societies and then assume that those, quote unquote, unique traits can then explain the emergence of European or Western power. The problem that you know I find, at least in those narratives, is they don't often pay very close attention to the world outside of Europe. Does that shock you? Uh, no, I'm not shocked by that. <laughs> they making grand proclamations about the world while only pay paying attention to one little tiny segment of the world. We are the world. Remember, Josh? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and because of that, the, the result is you get these descriptions which define the differences between quote unquote East and West. And sometimes those differences, differences don't even exist, right? <laughs> They're just, again, when you only look at one side, you can say these difference, differences exist. Um, when you're not looking very, very closely to, to find anything to counter that. Um, and then the other problem is that often those explanations don't actually explain anything, right? You've, you've kind of discovered this unique trait, but the unique trait is totally irrelevant to anything. And then the last thing that comes out of this is there's this tendency, therefore, to valorize European developments um, and suggest that there's something inherently good about the things that supposedly make the West so powerful, so great. Uh, so progressive or whatever the the uh, various descriptors are. So what I want to do here is, is again, based on our uh, topic of truth and meaning, just try to uh, undermine a little bit that those traditional narratives and particularly the idea of, of these massive differences between quote unquote West and East. So what I want to do here is I'm going to read you a description. I'm going to try to take out all the most specific descriptors um, and see if you can identify or guess you know, maybe what I'm describing based on this passage. All right, so here it goes. The basic tenor of this monarch's reign was said to be strict, but he was not aggressive or brutal. He was by no means adventurous in his military policies, and he could be remarkably lenient in his treatment of criminal offenders. The term referred instead to a hard-headed drive to rationalize bureaucratic administration and centralize state control no matter the cost or the opposition. His initiative to make counties more self-supporting by allowing them to collect a meltage fee was emblematic of this concern. So too were his efforts to bureaucratize the military, to eliminate certain gentry tax breaks, and to fold the head tax into the land tax for simplification. He sought to establish orphanages, poorhouses, and elementary schools in every county of his territory. 
briefly and ineffectively, he also campaigned to create a standard spoken language throughout his realm. So where does that sound like? If you just take that, that kind of broad description with all the uh, specific descriptors taken out, what, where does that sound like I'm describing? Uh, so globally, it might be this sort of thing I'm guessing that uh, Western writers would want to use to describe an enlightened, maybe European monarch. Absolutely. I mean, this could it could literally be like Louis the Fourteenth or something like that. Yeah, right? I was even thinking Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, okay. Yeah, no, that that's good too. Yeah, take it. That's a that's a big time range too. So that's that's important. Right. Now, what this actually is, and I'm sure you probably guessed it wasn't actually going to be Europe because that would be a weird thing for me to do. <laughs> um, this is describing the reign of the Yongjing Emperor of the Qing Dynasty oh, in China. So the Manchu Yongjing Emperor, mm. um, who's this remarkable figure. Uh, you know his. His father had ruled for 60 years, the Kangxi Emperor. Uh, his son ruled for 63 years. Mm -hmm. And Yongzheng gets this brief 13-year reign. Right? And in that reign, he wants to revolutionize everything. He's not happy with the way things are working. He thinks his father, for all his longevity, you know, let certain things go. And so he's got this, this, um, this plan to take this kind of, you know, this well-run empire, but one that's pretty decentralized where there's a lot of local... Um, you know, control over affairs where there's not, uh, there is a bureaucracy, but it's not very centralized in the way that, that he, he wants. And to basically make this into a, um, a, a, an imperial system run from the top, right? And it, it, it very much sounds like in the author, um, the author William Rowe points this out that if you, again, he's this kind of typical early modern emperor, right? That you could find somebody like him, certainly in Europe, as we talked mm -hmm. about. Um, but I think scholars are increasingly pointing out that, you know, some of the, the early Mughal emperors also had this, this very um, ambitious, these ambitious campaigns to restructure and, and reform their societies. But, but what we have then is this example of the fact that, you know, the uniqueness of, of these European, uh, you know, uh, developments weren't that unique. And in the case of the Yongjing Emperor, you know, as it suggests in the, in the piece I read, not everybody was, was for this. It says no matter the cost or the opposition to his thing. So he was going to go forward no matter what. And what happens is as soon as he dies, his son's like, no, we're not going to do this any longer. But the other thing we, we see from this is, you know, again, we, we've been talking about this, these ideas of liberty and freedom. And, and the, the general sense is that, you know, Europe is on this path, you know, as we get to the 18th century, certainly towards greater freedom, popular sovereignty, ideas of liberty. But if you're just going to compare you know, we'll just say, um, you know, France or England or, or Holland or, you know, any of the, the rich countries of Europe. We'll say at the tail end of the 18th century with China. And you just look at the power of the state in those places. What I would, I would argue is that the state in China was far less intrusive in the lives of its population than the states of Europe were. Right. That they, they uh, interfered less, the Chinese, uh, the, the Manchu state, the Qing state did in the lives of Chinese peasants than you would see in a typical monarch in one of these centralizing bureaucratic regimes in Europe. So you can say, well, okay, you know, those people in, in Europe increasingly had, you know, ideas of rights and things like that. And, and, you know, particularly as we get to the 19th century. But on the other hand, the reason they needed those rights is because the state was so much more intrusive upon their lives. And I, I may have used this example before, but, you know, so during the French Revolution, uh, the revolution was obviously, obviously fought uh, with the idea of overthrowing this quote-unquote absolutist monarch and establishing these concepts of freedom and liberty. But if you're asking, you know, we'll say peasants in the Vendée region, which is this coastal region 
in the west of France. Whether the revolution brought them more freedom and liberty, they would say absolutely not, because what the French Revolution meant to them, what this new revolutionary government meant to them, was that they were actually being asked to pay taxes, right, which they kind of were before. But more importantly, they were being asked to send their sons, their husbands, their fathers off to fight in the French army, right? Mm -hmm. We see a similar thing in kind of uh, modern Japan as well, under Meiji Japan, where we also see this kind of rationalizing, modernizing system of government, which is associated with constitutionalism, popular sovereignty, and these kinds of principles. For Japanese peasants, what this really meant is, once again, they were paying higher taxes and really exorbitant taxes in the case of, of Japan. And then more importantly, their sons were being taken away from them to go fight in this new national army. And Japanese peasants literally called this conscription campaign the blood tax, mm. right? Because that's how they saw it. And so, you know, again, freedom and liberty, that's all, that's all great. Those, those ideas sound good. But when we really dig in and look at the, the situation, the lives of people in these different uh, places, both within Europe and then outside of Europe, it gets a little more complicated when you look at not just what the, the, the potential power of the state was. In theory, the Chinese emperor was absolute. But in, in reality, he didn't exercise that absolute power all that often. There was all kinds of things that limited his ability to interfere in the lives of regular people. Um, and so a case could be made that a Chinese peasant in the 18th century was freer than French peasants under the revolutionary government um, of, of the French Revolution. All right, so there's my first example. Any, any reactions to that? Well, I think, you know, my reaction is that the, the real value uh, and, and utility of doing a less parochial history, you know, that, that is a more bordered, bounded history, is that you, it, it becomes so insular, you know, you do right. not understand that the things that the, the, the sort of thematic, uh, you know, uh, meanings that you're applying to this bounded history, that that they might not only apply elsewhere, but maybe apply in ways that are actually more revealing yes. uh, about the potential for certain universal notions of justice or, or freedom or liberty or that sort of thing. In other words, we, we assume the ones that we're using in our little bounded spaces pretty much exhaust the possibility. You know, yes. but, but when you pull right. back the lens like you just did, you, know, um, you, you start to see, oh, wait a minute, that might have actually been, you know, more beneficial and meaningful uh, in the lives of folks far afield from, you know, those bounded histories. Yes. You know, it's funny is that it just as a kind of self-reflexive uh, um, um, observation is that, you know, when I, when I first read that passage, so this was a couple of years ago when I read that book, mm -hmm. um, I found myself feeling very sympathetic to the Yongjing Emperor, right? And, and was disappointed, you know, reading this, that his son went against his policies. And at a certain point, I realized, well, wait, why am I rooting for state centralization and bureaucratic, <laughs> bureaucratization and all these things? And I, you realize, I, you know, what I realized is because that's what we're taught to root for, right? Mm. That, that the power of the state is, is generally what we're rooting for. And when there's decline, we're supposed to say, oh, that's bad. The state's declining. And when the empire breaks apart, oh, that's bad. They lost power. You know, that we, we lament the end of the Roman Empire and that kind of stuff. 
But, you know, reading James Scott, this this guy we reference a few times, you know, he makes his point. Well, why are we rooting for, <laughs> for why are we rooting for empires all the time? Why are we rooting for the state all the time? In most cases, when the state goes into, quote unquote, decline, what that means is, you know, parts of the territory, parts of the empire get to break apart and be independent of each other. And there's nothing that's inherently bad about that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, it just was a, a little moment where I realized, oh, I have been so schooled in this bias towards the state that. Yeah. Um, I was I was buying into the uh, the uh, the propaganda. Well, that's all what right. that's what we've come to call the sovereignty trap. Yeah, no, right? exactly. You yeah. know, we're all all sort of roads for for uh, analysis lead through that governing, you know, apparatus. You know, uh, right. uh, which is limiting, obviously, in, in 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 many instances. But but even if we we stick with it, you know, what I get from your example, even if we want to look at sovereignty, is you know, an individual there who was trying in his thirteen year reign to to at least provide for some kind of centralized uh, what application of of government authority, bureaucracy, et cetera, in ways that didn't, you know, actually what uh, sort of um, you know, aggrandize, you know, say the the military, you, right. you know. In other words, we weren't doing the what was it the blood tax you mentioned, yeah. Yeah. you know. We weren't just conscripting poor farmer boys, you know, out of the provinces and throwing into the some military juggernaut or something. So, yeah, we're still talking about as you point out centralized governing, but but even within that, you know, sort of bounded space, there are other maybe more profitable examples. I guess what. I'm yes. Saying, right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So let me give me your give you my second example, and by okay. you I mean you and all our listeners, of course. Sure. Listeners can listen to this as well, not just not just Chris. <laughs> um, and this one comes from India, and this is actually uh, quoting our one of our favorite scholars, Priya Satya, um, and she, this is a uh, from a review she wrote for a book called Anarchy by William Dalrymple, um, who is a, a scholar of, of India, and he's written he's kind of uh, he's a, he's a legit scholar, but he writes popular histories, very readable. Very fun, um, and and often very sympathetic. By the way, to the Indians, they're not kind of these traditional imperial histories that celebrate British Empire or anything like that. But she's she's somewhat critical of of, the, in many ways, the title right, anarchy, and it's about the rise of the East India Company, in in India, the British East India Company, in India. So here here's where she kind of gets into the part that I'm interested in. She says, so she's talking about basically the 18th century. In the 18th century, the old Mughal Empire which a century earlier had been maybe the most powerful single empire in the world, certainly the richest empire in the entire world. Um, you know, the, the Mughal themselves, the, the rulers of the Mughal empire, give us the term Mughal, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, somebody of, of particular powers, a Mughal. And that's because Europeans were so impressed by their wealth and their authority. Um, so, but by the 18th century, the Mughal empire had begun to quote unquote, go into decline. Um, and one of the ways that that is seen is through the empire breaking apart, right? And so where you once had one massive empire, there's now a lot of smaller states within the old imperial territory. All right, so now I'm quoting Priya Satya, quote, the restless European subcontinent in the same period, 18th century again, offers a useful comparison. There, continual wars over succession and territories infused with sectarian differences have typically not been read as anarchy, but as progress. <laughs> Histories march toward the natural order of nation-states. Given the evident strength of new regional powers in India, normative language like decline, crisis, and anarchy may be equally inappropriate to historical translation, uh, transitions underway, underway there. Dalrymple calls the new powers 
quote, smaller and more vulnerable. Will we talk about the successor states of the Holy Roman Empire in such terms? Why is disunity among the Marathas more of a historical failure than, say, Jacobite rebellion in England? The key difference between this, the two subcontinental stories is perhaps simply that groups of armed traders were not poised at Europe's coast to exploit tectonic shifts there. Because Europe, and this is a nice little way to end this, because Europe offered little seduction in the way of riches. Nobody wanted to go to Europe because there's nothing there to want to take. It's a backwater. <laughs> it's a backwater. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. So I read this weeks ago and it's just kind of stuck with me. It stuck with me to the extent I totally forgot where I'd read it and who had, who had written it. Um, but, but just this idea that, well, why do we, again, why do we see um, the disintegration of, of imperial states as signs of decline uh, of crisis and that sort of thing, especially because, as she's, she so brilliantly points out, we're so often told that it's the, the interstate system of Europe, the system of competing states in Europe, that is the source, or at least one of the sources, of European power in, in later centuries. Right? So you start seeing that even the logic of these Rise of the West narratives don't hold water when you even make a cursory glance at other societies, at other regions of the world. Yeah, that you can get such different meaning from rather parallel uh, developments, right? In other words, you know, extracting a different meaning from a, yes. an analogous truth or something. And I, I don't know, Josh, because this is really your, you know, your strong point. But does it have something to do with other sort of uh, controlling metaphors like, you know, Orientalism or something? In other words which have built into them, kind of front-loaded into them, this idea of, of what, of corruption and largesse and ultimately breakdown, whereas in Europe, the rise, the very metaphor of rise sort of engineers into the same kind of political movements an entirely different meaning or something? I, I think, no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, so, the, you know, the famous phrase, oriental despotism, right? Yes. That phrase becomes so much a part of how uh, the quote-unquote East was understood for so long and written about for so long um, that these were despotic regimes. And in these despotic regimes, for instance, there was no room for a middle class to emerge. Uh, there was no property rights. We often hear that. Um, and as a result, you couldn't see the, the, the emergence of a class of people similar to the, 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 what uh, Pat Manning calls the proprietor class in Europe. Mm -hmm. And the result is um, that their ability to progress, again, to use a loaded term, was stilted by the power of, of the state, the lack of liberty and the lack of freedom. And, and, you know, it's very much the case where the story is writing itself, right? As you said, the metaphor is already there, and that's determining how that story is told. And ag again, you know, we have this example where this, there's a lot of truth in what's what's what people are saying in the sense that yes, mm -hmm. India used to be unified and it becomes disunified. Mm -hmm. That is a true statement. Mm -hmm. But what the problem once again is is the the meaning, the value, the assumptions built into that, mm -hmm. um, which are so vastly different when you look at as you said similar situations, mm -hmm. in quote unquote West, and East. And you know I can kind of finish up here, but but when you start looking at this, what you begin to realize is that. You know, every time you hear these explanations, and I'm just going to throw out some of the more, to me, sillier explanations for the rise of the West. Double entry bookkeeping was an old famous one. <laughs> Europeans discovered double entry bookkeeping. So, of course, that's going to lead straight to uh, industrialization, right? Um, William McNeil, who is a fantastic scholar, I'm not trying to run him down now, but he wrote this a long time ago, said the moldboard plow, this particular kind of plow in Europe, uh, was going to encourage 
you know, cooperative farming. Or I don't remember exactly what the argument is. I kind of stopped reading at Moldboard Plow, I, I think. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, the enclosures in, in England, um, the, uh, the, the interstate rivalries, as we just talked about, all these various explanations, they're all, you know, again, there's, tr- there's, there's truth to them, right? Mm-hmm. Double entry bookkeeping maybe did develop in Europe. There's some dispute about that. The Moldboard Plow was particularly European. There was, in fact, an interstate system of competition and rivalry. But the question that you keep coming back to is, well, does it matter, though? Right? Does that actually explain anything about history? Does it, does it explain outcomes at all? And I'm less and less convinced of that. But what I am convinced of is the more you focus on mold board plows and state competition and enclosures, the less we lose sight of the actual explanatory factors for the quote-unquote rise of the West. And that is the massive plundering of wealth from the Americas and from Africa. Right. And once you put that in there, then everything else starts making sense. And you don't need to come up with these, you know, unique European traits, these unique historical developments, these ideas of European culture and the public sphere and whatever it is. Because if you imagine any state, any region uh, being infused with massive amounts of new wealth and resources, you're probably going to have a pretty good uh, explanation for why that region began to grow in wealth and why it began to grow in power. So sometimes we look for these complex reasons, and in, in doing so, we lose sight of the obvious, which uh, in the case of, of this particular story, is it turns out looting tons of wealth, resources, and stealing land from people is going to enrich your society. <laughs> at a cost, yeah. right? At a cost yeah. that gets us back to where you were talking about um, of societies built on exploitation, dehumanization, and all the things that emerge in the Western Hemisphere post-1492. Well, that's fantastic. Um, you know, that's really, that's food for thought. You know, because among other things, it seems like what you're saying is, particularly when you look at something like um, what technology and claims of technological, you know, invention and that sort of yeah. thing is somehow not only unlocking some great Promethean, you know, development, um, but also representing some what, uh, you know, exceptional uh, national genius or something, you know, I mean, yeah. it, it, it underlies that, that those claims of exceptionalism and sort of does the work of, of that as well, right? Like, well, you know, yes. Britain is different because of the, you know, um, the steam engine, you know, yeah. and the, the U.S. is different. Uh, because of the cotton gin. Well, you know, the the funny thing is, these are like Trojan horses, you know, and they're never mm-hmm. really ex- sort of fully exposed because, you know, if you look at something like the steam engine, you know, and, and, and the cotton gin purely in what economic sort of aggregate productivity terms or something, you know, you get this kind of uh, what this kind of emblem for progress and modernity. But when you look to a deeper meaning, if you'll allow me, you know, to mm-hmm. these things, you know, what you find are the, you know, is the seedbed of catastrophe, you know, yeah. because, you know, I mean, obviously something like the cotton gin is is going to allow that that manifold deepening and broadening of enslavement uh, in the United States, even as it does, in fact, exponentially increase, you know, the productivity of cotton production. So. Uh, so yeah, so that's a choice, right, Josh? I mean, you know, one yeah. one meaning shouldn't just simply eclipse another because it reflects better on the sovereignty 
question. Uh, I think we're 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 almost honor bound, aren't we, to to look more closely at this issue of meaning where those kinds of claims, you know, are made. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's our that's our entire mission, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know this, this idea of of we need to be looking for meaning and not just truth is it's a really good. We've had these these moments in in the podcast where we've kind of uh, hit upon you know, or, or learn from somebody else or read something uh, from somebody else that, that really crystallizes things we've been kind of getting mm-hmm. towards or, or moving towards for a while. And I, I really think that, um, uh, you know, Raul Peck, and I, and I imagine, you know, he very much is, is quoting, if at least paraphrasing uh, Trio uh, when, he, when he says this stuff, but he's, he's really, you know, showed us a way of, of thinking about things that, that have already been on our minds. So I think we're going to be carrying this forward uh, from here on out. Yeah. And unless folks, you know, just assume we're a couple of what hair on fire academics or something, you know, uh, which we are, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Always making a a tempest out of the, you know, what the the finest academic difference or something. Look, I mean, just what yesterday morning, you and I were texting back and forth. You know, there's a story in The New York Times. Uh, You know, I take The New York Times to be a kind of what barometer of of public interest news or something in this country. Right. And so, uh, you know, there's the piece in there about what's happening in in Tennessee as we speak. You know, there's there's not only a Tennessee legislator who's, you know, making a speech and claiming that the three fifths compromise, which, you know, infamously allowed uh, states uh, through the Constitution to claim enslaved persons for the purposes of representation in, in Congress, but claiming that the three-fifths compromise, you know, was actually a boon to what ultimately was an anti-slavery interest. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm so, I mean, it just boggles my, okay, fine. You know, ne- never mind that confused tangle of meaning, but at the same time in the same article, that this is part of a larger effort in the Tennessee legislature to make it, um, uh, well, we'll put it this way, to, to, to uh, eliminate funding to any schools, state funding to education of any schools uh, who are found to be teaching something that conservatives love to call critical race theory, which is, uh, you know, we could go on about this, but for now, maybe in another episode, we'll look at it. So, you know, it's this sort of red herring uh, that is, you know, I guess gets big ratings on, you know, on Fox News or whatever. But but basically, if you apply it, in fact, what, what is the meaning of it? It would be just about everything I suppose we've talked about this episode. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, sure, our hair's on fire. Uh, but but that's because there are people out there throwing bombs, you know? <laughs> well, and, and, you know, when you say there's people out there, it's not, I mean, it's literally, you know, uh, agents of the state, right? These are elected right. representatives. Yes. And, you know, I mentioned cancel culture before kind of jokingly, but but there's a big difference between people on Twitter being mad at somebody for something they said in a comedy routine and state legislators trying to legislate what it is children can learn and, and uh, trying to keep them from being exposed to this, quote unquote, uh, you know, um, alternate history or, or whatever they're going to they're going to call it. Um, it's really chilling when you when you kind of think about where this is, is, is heading. And I think, you know, the lesson for us as historians is. If we're just going to be, you know, kind of neutral historians who are just kind of telling stories and here's some facts and here's, you know, some true things that happen. If we're not going to put meaning on those things, then somebody else is. Um, and so I think we need to be very aware of, of you know, as we've said before, that there's nothing neutral about, about what we do. Um, there always has to be some meaning behind it, some 
meaning that that kind of uh, creates truth in the minds of our students and ourselves. Wow, you know what? Our our uh, our San Francisco Giants may have lost in the thin air of Colorado, but you know, partner, <laughs> you, you just hit a home run. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna leave you here with a, uh, one last quote from from Raul Peck from Exterminate All the Brutes, which sums up a lot of what we've been saying. So thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks with episode 44. Any historical narrative is a particular bundle of silences. It is an exercise of power that makes some narratives possible and silences others. In this fabricated narrative, not all silences are equal. Our job as filmmakers, writers, historians, image makers is to deconstruct these silences. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play into ignorance. Another 